This audio is brought to you by MuslimCentral.com. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi s-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Wal'udwani illa ala dhalameen. Wal'aqibatu lil-mutaqeen. Allahumma salli wa sallam wa baraka al-abdika wa rasulika Muhammadin sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam tasliman kathira. I want to welcome everyone back, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen, after Ramadan to the first... And subhanAllah, as we went into Ramadan, we finished covering really the, the five most instrumental people to bringing Islam to Medina. In fact, if you look at these five people that we spoke about, and I'm not going to ask you to name them all, but inshallah ta'ala, you'll go back and watch them to refresh your memory about how Islam spread through the city of Medina. Uh, it starts with these five, and these five are the foundation for all the khair that will come for the next however many episodes we're going to spend with the Ansar of the Prophet after him. And there was a particular person, and when I started the series of the first, just so you can know how special this person is to my heart, when I started the series, I actually said to myself, I can't wait to do Umm Sulaiman That's how incredible this woman that we're going to cover is. And some of you might have had this experience where you've come up to me and asked me, uh, what should I name my daughter? And I'll tell you, Rumaysa, uh, after Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha, because she's such a special woman, and as we're naming after the righteous, then we need to, inshallah ta'ala, honor them in the most blessed of ways. So what makes her so special, and how are we going to understand her, inshallah ta'ala, in the best of ways? When you're reading Sahih Muslim, if you get to the chapter of Kitab Fadal al-Sahaba radiallahu ta'ala anhum, the book of the virtues of companions, subhanAllah, he places her story right after Umm Ayman radiallahu ta'ala anha. And if there is one person who resembles Umm Ayman radiallahu ta'ala anha in the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, it is Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha. So I want you to think about her. This has not been written anywhere. I'm just saying that as you go through her story, think of all the similarities that you're going to find with Umm Ayman radiallahu ta'ala anha. So you had Umm Ayman in Mecca, who of course migrated with the Prophet sallallahu but that caring, loving mother that was always looking over his shoulder. Here you have Umm Sulaim radiallahu anha, the Umm Ayman of Medina, that will always be there in the background with the Prophet sallallahu caring for him, making sure that he's fed, listening to his voice to, to see if she could hear a weakness and a fatigue in his voice so that she can feed him. This is the character of the woman that we are going to be covering. So her name is once again Umm Sulaim, but she does not have a son named Sulaim. Sulaim was the name of her younger brother. Okay, so both she and her sister are named uh, by their younger brothers, the mothers of their younger brothers, and that could be, Allah knows best, because they used to be like mothers to their younger brothers. So from an early age, they were called Umm Sulaim and Umm Haram. Umm Sulaim bint Milhan, Umm Haram bint Milhan. And we will talk about her as well, radiallahu ta'ala anha. So her name is Umm Sulaim bint Milhan. Her actual first name is Al-Rumaysa or Al-Ghumaysa, so with a Ra or with a Ghain, Al-Rumaysa or Al-Ghumaysa. Uh, both of them show up actually in authentic narrations, and it could be that, that both of them are actually appropriate, that you could call her by the Ra or by the Ghain, Rumaysa or Ghumaysa, or Sahla or Malika. These are also names that were attributed to her. But as we said, she's most famous for uh, her kunya, the nickname of Umm Sulaim, being the mother of Sulaim, who was her younger brother. Now, Imam al-Nawi tells us something about her from the very beginning, which is important in the context of the story. 
that both she and her sister are considered khalat, considered maternal aunts to the Prophet Because what you're going to see in the story is an unusual closeness. The Prophet going and taking naps in her home. The Prophet talking to her in that way, treating her in that way. And Imam An-Nawi rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that Umm Haram wa ukht, uh, uh, and Umm Sulaym uh, both Umm Haram and her sister Umm Sulaym كانتا خالتين برسول الله صلى الله عليه وسلم محرمين إما من الرضاعة وإما من النسب that these two women were both maternal aunts of the Prophet either through breastfeeding or through actual nasab, through actual lineage how? these two women are from the clan of Banu Najjar and I know it's been a while since we've gone through the first but we talked about how Banu Najjar was the, uh, were, were the maternal relatives of Abdul Muttalib. So that's why when the Prophet ﷺ came to Yathrib, he came to Medina, right? He had a connection to Banu Najjar because they are considered his maternal aunts. And Umm Sulaym and Umm Haram are from Banu Najjar. And so either they're actually great aunts of the Prophet ﷺ in that sense, or which was very common at the time in terms of feeding and, and foster care, that it was the mothers and the aunts and they would basically be the same thing. And so there is a, uh, you know, a, a kinship there between the Prophet ﷺ and them that makes them mahram to the Prophet ﷺ. So that's another thing to understand. However, there is no relationship, no actual relationship before Islam between the Prophet ﷺ and Umm Sulaym or Umm Haram. Okay, but just in terms of the uh, establishing the kinship between them. This is what we have narrated from Imam Anawi rahimahullah ta'ala as well as Imam Ibn Abdul Bar. Now, what is her reputation? Before Islam, she's considered to be one of the most beautiful women of Al-Madina. She's considered to be you know, exceedingly uh, strong, assertive. She's known for being very assertive, very independent-minded, uh, uh, one of the few literate women in Al-Madina. Remember, both men and women. At that time, you don't find many people that were literate. She knew poetry, she was literate. So she was really uh, someone that had a prized position in that society of Al-Madina. And of course, Yathrib before the Prophet And she was married to who was considered one of the most noble men who happened to escape the Bu'ath Wars because he was a merchant. And his name was Malik ibn Nadr. Malik ibn Nadr was considered one of the richest men of Al-Madina. Uh, someone that matches her in terms of his prominence and his prestige in that society. And when the Bu'ath Wars happened, where most of the men killed each other off, he was out in a sham on a trade route. So he escaped the bloodbath, literally the bloodbath, that would happen with the Bu'ath Wars before Islam. So she's married to him, nobleman in Medina. And they have two sons, Malik ibn Nadr and, and her have two sons, Anas and Al-Bara. Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu and Al-Bara ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Now I'll just say this, that there's a difference of opinion in regards to Al-Bara, if, if, if Umm Sulaym was actually uh, his mother or if his mother was another wife uh, of Malik ibn Nadr. Okay, but Allah knows best, it seems that, this is, that she's actually his mother as well, but he was grown. And Anas ibn Malik radiallahu ta'ala anhu was the young, beautiful boy from whom we would gain so much of our deen. Anas ta'ala anhu, the son of Umm Sulaym and Anas ibn Nadr. And Anas, uh, I'm sorry, Malik ibn Nadr. And Anas ta'ala anhu says that he was named after his paternal uncle, Anas ibn Nadr. So again, Malik ibn Nadr, the father, Umm Sulaym, the mother. And then you have the paternal uncle, Anas ibn Nadr. 
and he is the one about whom the ayah was revealed. The verse where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and from the believers are those who were truthful to the covenant they made with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some of them fulfilled their covenant right away. Some of them were delayed in fulfilling their covenant to God. But they never changed in their intention and their resolve. This is Anas ibn Nadr, the brother of Malik ibn Nadr, the paternal uncle of Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu. And he said, when he missed Badr, he said, if Allah gives me another chance, then you will see what I will do, Ya Rasulullah. They will see my courage and my bravery. And he was one of those, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, in Uhud who charged forth and who told everyone to keep on going forward when others were fleeing. So he was uh, martyred in Uhud in a, in, in a very notable way. And so this is the uncle. Now, how does Islam enter into this household? It actually does not start with Malik because Malik, once again, is out on a trade route. Okay? Prominent businessman that travels the world. It starts with Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha. And she was in the gathering of Mus'ab ibn Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu, the very first da'wah gathering, that small gathering we talked about with As'ad ibn Zurara radiallahu anhu. She was there present when Mus'ab radiallahu anhu began his da'wah. And she immediately embraced Islam. And so some of, them, some of the scholars even say she's the very first female convert in Medina. Talk about distinction. The very first woman to embrace Islam in Yathrib was Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha. Now, her husband is away. Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu is a little child at the time. The ruling on marrying or, or, or being married to non-Muslims, that's still not clarified at this point in Islam. This is still very early on in Islam. Okay? So at this point, there is no halal and haram, and there is no breaking off the relationships if, if a person was married to, if a, if a Muslim woman was married to a non-Muslim man. However, subhanAllah, we're going to see that as soon as Malik ibn Nadr comes back, then the change starts to happen. He comes home, and he sees her practicing this new faith. And he says, Asabauti, remember in the, when we talked about uh, the story of Umar radiallahu anhu, this was the derogatory term. This was the Islamophobic term for saying, did you become Muslim? Like I heard about this foolishness while I was gone from Medina. Did you join this foolish religion? And she said, ma sabot, walakinni amant. She corrected the terminology. She said, no, but I did believe. I became a Muslim if that's what you're asking me. And so he starts to yell at her. He's furious with her and starts to threaten her if she does not leave this religion and says, leave this poison from this household. Haven't I given you enough of this dunya to where you don't have to think about something in regards to the hereafter? You're good. Why are you even doing this? Why are you bringing this into our home? Stop it. She ignores him and instead she brings baby Anas. And she says to Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, say la ilaha illallah. And she has him actually repeat La ilaha illallah to his father. And Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu was a baby boy. So she has Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu repeating La ilaha illallah after her in front of Malik ibn al-Nadr. And he starts to yell at her and he says, La tufsidi alayya ibni, don't corrupt my son like you corrupted yourself. And so this becomes a source of tension in the household. But again, at this point, she doesn't have to divorce him. There's no ruling in regards to this. At the end of the day, what we know is that she is going to remain on Islam. Malik ibn Nadr says, I don't have time for this nonsense. He comes home, he gets angry about it. At the same time, he's busy with his money. 
He's not someone that's actually taking a position against the Prophet ﷺ, trying to stop Islam in Medina in any active way, other than being annoyed by it, right? And annoyed by the fact that his wife and his son have accepted uh, Islam. So he goes off to Asham again, okay? Now on this trade route to Asham, Malik ibn Nadar passes away, and he passes away as a non-Muslim. And subhanAllah, like I think about this and I say, had he merely said, La ilaha illallah, think about the sadaqa jariyah that would have outlasted him. It's actually tragic. All that Anas would do, and all the offspring of Anas would have been in his scale to some extent. But because he didn't have time to even entertain the thought of theology, a religion, and he immediately rejected it, instead he becomes a dead man out in Asham. We don't even know where his grave is today. SubhanAllah, imagine if he would have embraced Islam. Right? Imagine what would have been waiting for him, what would have been stored for him. And so you see the, the blessings that he missed out on by refusing this religion. And that shows you, SubhanAllah, the limited time that you have when Allah Subhanahu wa Taala shows you guidance. Many people drag their feet and they don't know. Maybe in his mind he thought, you know, I'll see how this plays out in Medina. I'm not really a guy that's very active politically speaking. I'll see how this drags out. If things go wrong, then I'll take this, this route. If things go right, then I'll take this route. But he continued, unfortunately, and he persisted in his ways of disbelief. Now you can think about Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha. She's distraught. I mean, her last memories with her husband is being completely estranged from him over a decision that she ultimately took. And this could have really shaken her faith, right? Given her doubt. You know, I, I said, La ilaha illallah, and my husband died. You know, I went from being married to a nobleman, a rich man in Medina, and now I'm a widow. What happened, right? This could have been a fitna for her. It could have been a trial in her faith. And she could have been struck with immense guilt. But instead, subhanAllah, we find her very patient. We find her staying strong on her faith. And we find her... Uh, continuing to come close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and this is all happening before the bay'ah to the Prophet sallallahu al-Aqaba al-Thaniyah remember the, the second bay'ah where a group of Ansar would go to the Prophet sallallahu this is all happening within the first few months of Mus'ab and As'ad and the two Sa'ads in Medina uh, spreading Islam so what happens to her is very interesting remember she's a very desirable woman a man by the name of Abu Talha. Abu Talha's actual name was Zayd ibn Sahl. Zayd ibn Sahl. Uh, he didn't actually have a son named Talha. So it's common amongst the Arabs, right, that you would call your son or your, your daughter by a name, a kunya, which is Abu or Um, the father of or the mother of so and so, before they even have a child. So this is kunya. Abu Talha was from the same tribe as her, from Banu Najjar. So he waited for some time, and this was a man who's very similar to Malik ibn Nadr in terms of his prominence. He'd be next in line, very wealthy, extremely noble character, uh, known for his manners. And this is actually a distinguishing factor. Very distinguished by his akhlaq, by his manners, and known for his kindness. He's very uh, good to the poor, generous with the poor. And Abu Talha comes to her and proposes to her. And she says to him, Ya Abu Talha, مِثْلُكَ لَا يُرَى The person like you would not be turned away. But I am a Muslim woman. mushrik, And you're a disbeliever. You're not halal for me. You're not, you know, you're not permitted for me to marry. So Abu Talha was kind of offended by that, right? Like I brought this whole scene to marry you. 
right, to get you out of this tragedy, to save you from this devastation that you're in, and this is how you respond to me? I mean, it's not really a rude response, but still, it's like, I'm a Muslim, you're not sorry, we can't do this. Abu Talha says, That's not what's really stopping you from marrying me. So she says, what is it then? He said, You want more gold and silver, right? I've got to up the dowry, up what I'm, at, what I'm bringing to you. I've got to bring a bigger, a bigger thing next time. And she says, Rather, I bear witness, O Abu Talha. I, I call you to bear witness, and Allah and His Messenger. If you became Muslim, I would be pleased with you as a husband. And that would be my mahar. That would be my dowry. I don't want anything else from you. You're a rich man. You got all these treasures. You got all this stuff going on for you. All you have to do is say, La ilaha illa Muhammad Rasulullah, and that's good enough for me. That would be my mahar. So Abu Talha was taken aback. He recognized this was a sincere conviction. And subhanAllah, like Malik ibn Nadr, he's kind of busy with the money that he has. Anas anhu says he owned more property in Medina than anyone else. So he's just not really interested. But he says, look, I'll, I'll think about what you've said and I'll study it a bit. He comes back to her a few days later and says, have you changed your mind? She says, no. Have you? He said, no. So like, is it really Islam? Is it going to... No, I, you still can't marry me unless you become Muslim. And she's like, have you thought about it? He's like, not really. And then she starts to give him hints. She sees him one day worshipping his idols, you know, doing the ritual. And she says to him, hey, what would happen to your idols if they were thrown into a fire? Abu Talha said they would burn. So then that's the kind of God you worship? Moves on. Another time, she says to him, don't you feel kind of silly worshipping a part of a tree, because there's some wood in the idol, a part of a tree, that if you needed to cook or keep yourself warm, you'd throw it into a fire to keep yourself warm? Don't you feel kind of silly doing that? So Abu Talha is kind of taking it. He's taking the hints. And then finally, subhanAllah, after some time, he thought about it, and he comes back to her and, and says, I believe in that which you believe. So you know what? I believe in that which you believe. So she gives him shahada. All right? She gives him shahada. Anas anhu was 10 years old. She says to him, Ya Anas, qum fazawaj Abu Talha. Anas, stand up and marry Abu Talha to your mother. <laughs> so Anas anhu, I mean, of course, by the way, things are not very defined yet in Islam at this point, right? We're still at the aqidah phase, creed phase, belief in Allah, belief in the hereafter. We don't have many of the rulings yet, right? But Anas is going to be the one to perform the nikah for his mother to Abu Talha. And Thawban anhu then said the very famous statement, he said, we do not know of a single woman. Imra'a kana mahruha khayran min mahri Umm Sulaim. We don't know of a single woman who had a better mahar than Umm Sulaim radiallahu anha fakana mahruha al-Islam. Her mahar was Islam. The dowry she sought from her husband was Islam. All she wanted from him was Islam and that was the basis of the marriage contract that you become Muslim. And that's the only gift that I want from you. Now comes the next part of this. Bay'atul Aqaba Athaniya, the second bay'ah, the pledge where multiple people are going to go from Yathrib and take the pledge with the Prophet. And it was all men. And Umm Sulaim says, I'm coming too. You'll see this throughout her seerah. She asserts herself. And it was her, and no surprise, Nusayba bint Ka'b, Umm Ammara. So the woman that would be wielding a sword, who we will have 
uh, uh, you know, a future halaqa on for sure, radiallahu ta'ala anha, and Asma bint Amr as well, according to some narrations. So these two or three women go along with the group of 73 men who are going to take their pledge to the Prophet Abu Talha was one of the men, and Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha was there, and she had her baby boy Anas, and she sees people going and dedicating themselves to the Prophet and she's so saddened that she can't dedicate herself or she can't be there the way that some of the men are around the Prophet And she wants to give everything for this deen. So she takes her son Anas and she says, Ya Rasulullah, this is my son. He's in your service until, the, until one of you passes away. Take my son. <laughs> Not take my necklace. Not, no, Ya Rasulullah, this is my son. He's at your service. He's in your khidmah. The best favor she ever did for Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Anas radiallahu anhu, he used to become emotional when narrating this incident. Like think about it for him, he remembers the moment that his mother told him that you are in the service of Rasulullah the most beloved person in the world to him. So Anas radiallahu anhu used to cry when he would be narrating uh, this narration about himself. And he says that my mother said, Ya Rasulullah, khadimuka Anas, ud'u'llah lahu. Ya Rasulullah, here is your servant Anas, make dua for him. So the Prophet said, Allahumma akthir malahu wa waladahu wa barik lahu fima a'taytahu. Three things. The Prophet said, Oh Allah, bless him with his wealth, bless him with his children, and bless him in everything that you will give to him. Now, when we do the seerah of Anas next week, Anas had a lot of kids, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and a lot of grandkids and a lot, of, a lot of wealth that came to him. SubhanAllah, he, he used to attribute it back to this one moment where his mother said, make dua for him. Ud'u'llaha lahu. Then they come back to Medina. Rasulullah comes to Medina and finds that Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha has turned a part of her home into a musalla. By the way, this is actually, some of the scholars will speak about this and saying the value of having a part of your home that's dedicated to a salah. And I think a lot of us learned this in COVID in particular, right? Like it could be really enriching, okay? Not something you have to do, not even something that we would say is a sunnah per se, but something that we find some of the sahaba and sahabiyat used to do, to have a particular part of the home that's dedicated to it. Now realize when the Prophet came to Medina, if you remember, everyone wanted the Prophet to pray amongst their tribe. Okay, so this tribe gets the Prophet for this day, and then this tribe, and basically blesses the musalla that would be for that tribe. Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha wants the Prophet to come pray two rak'ahs in her home. And the Prophet honors that. So Rasulullah comes and he prays in the musalla of Umm Sulaim in her home, and that's something that gives her great joy. Now, after that, SubhanAllah, this is not the only time that the Prophet will continue to enter. Remember, she's mahram to him. She's his maternal aunt in that sense. And the Prophet recognizes the sincerity of this woman and the desire of this woman to be close to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And so Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Lam yakun Rasulullahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam yadkulu baytan ghayra bayti ummi Sulaim. That there is no house that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in all of Medina, that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam would enter the way that he would enter into the house of Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha. And someone said, said something to him, mentioned it to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, not antagonizing him, but, but as an observation, like subhanAllah, the amount of times you visit this family, Umm Sulaim and Abu Talha, and you have Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, who's like your own son, the son of Umm Sulaim with you. 
And the Prophet ﷺ mentioned, and this is something very beautiful, he said that this is mercy. Her brother was killed with me. Why? Because the brothers of Umm Sulaim, Sulaim and Haram, were actually murdered, were martyred in battle in a very brutal way. So Rasulullah is saying this is also a form of rahmah, that the two brothers of Umm Sulaim and Umm Haram were martyred alongside me. And so this is a rahmah to them as well. Not just the fact that they are a qaraba, that they are a close kinship to the Prophet but also something of that as well. And you find constant narrations of Rasulullah visiting this woman's home. Anas who we're going to talk about next week, who's you know, subhanAllah, uh, what, what would our deen be? What would we have of our religion without Anas right? Anas has all these stories of the times the Prophet came to our house. So he said one time Rasulullah came over and he sat down in the, basically the living room, right? In the area in, you know, where they would have their guests. And Umm Sulaim brought some dates and some butter, you know, thinking that she could feed the Prophet And Rasulullah said, put the butter back and put the dates back, I'm fasting. And, and then went to the musalla area. And he prayed there in that musalla, uh, uh, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And out loud, he made dua for Umm Sulaim and the inhabitants of the household. Look at the akhlaq, the character of the Prophet And nothing was more pleasing to her heart than that, right? Like he comes and he prays وسلم, in the corner and he makes dua for Umm Sulaim and for her children. And Anas who makes it a point to say, this was not one of the fara'at. This was a separate prayer. This wasn't one of the obligatory prayers. A separate prayer that the Messenger وسلم, would make for Umm Sulaim anha. Anas who says, and you know, and Umm Sulaim was known for keeping orphans around her. So he said, and I remember uh, when the Prophet came to the house of my mother, and I, along with an orphan, stood behind him, and Umm Sulaim stood behind us, and he led us in salah, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he said that all we had in that home was this one mat that we used to use for everything. It was our, uh, it was our mattress at night, it was our carpet during the day, it was our table spread when we needed to eat. So we had this one mat and basically Umm Sulaim would wash this mat all the time with water and we just use it for everything. SubhanAllah, look at the simplicity of these people. This was a woman that was married to the, the richest man of Medina in Jahiliyyah and then the richest man to, of, of Medina in Islam. And this is what, what she used to do, just this one mat that she would wipe off, wash off and we'd pray on it, subhanAllah, and the Prophet would lead us in salah on that mat. This one spread that we would use. Just think of the vivid you know, uh, imagination even, subhanAllah, that we could put ourselves in that home. This one hasir that the Prophet would lead us on every single time. And then there is one incident, and some of you might remember this uh, incident from uh, the, the meeting Muhammad وسلم, uh, series, where there was an orphan girl uh, that Umm Sulaim used to take care of. And Rasulullah saw her, and it was after some time she'd grown up a bit, and the Prophet said, Antihiya, are you, are you her? Laqad kabirti la kabira sinnuki. You've gotten so much bigger, may you not get older. It's an expression. The Prophet did not make dua against her. It's an expression. And so this young, I mean, it's like, you see, like, I can't believe you've gotten so big. You know, you need to stop growing on me, right? I wish you'd stop growing. When you say, I wish you'd stop growing, you're not wishing death on someone. But coming from the mouth of the messengers, it scared this poor young girl. So she, she went uh, to Umm Sulaim weeping. 
And Umm Sulaim is comforting her like, what's wrong? And she's saying, Rasulullah, what did Rasulullah do to you? Like, the Prophet made you cry? And she said, he cursed me. And she's like, what are you talking about? He put a curse on me. She said, I'm not going to grow up anymore. I'm not going to grow any further than this. She said, why? And she said, because the Prophet said, you know, may you not get older. He used that expression. So Umm Sulaim, she quickly threw on her khimar. She went running to the Prophet and Rasulullah sees her coming, and even the, the, the nature of how she's coming, he says, Malaki ya Umm Sulaim. Like, what's your problem? What's going on here? Like, what happened? This is, this is very serious. And she says, Ya Rasulullah, you made dua against the orphan girl. And the Prophet said, What are you talking about? And she said, You, you said to her, May you not grow older. And the Prophet started to laugh, and he said, Ya Umm Sulaim, don't you know? So don't you know, Umm Sulaim, that between me and my Lord is that if I say something like that with a Muslim, you know, in a moment, and it's not meant in a, in a way that's a curse, then it will actually be a means of uh, purification and purity and nearness to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the Day of Judgment. It'll actually be a blessing for them. So, uh, you know, tell her not to worry. I didn't curse her. Inshallah ta'ala, it'll actually be good for her uh, at the end of the day. So this was the nature of that relationship, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, with her in her home and with the orphans that were around her. There's also another narration in Al-Bukhari about a miracle that happened in that home. And Anas says that Abu Talha came to Umm Sulaim one day and said to her that I could hear the hunger in the voice of the Prophet Kind of look how these people were paying attention to the Messenger I heard al-ju' I could hear the hunger in his voice He sounded tired, he sounded fatigued and I'm worried about him Umm Sulaim what does she do? She, Anas who's the kid standing there, right? Uh, Anas uh, said that my mother took me, Umm Sulaim took me, she took all the loaves of bread that she had, she wrapped it up in one of her hijabs, and she put it under my armpit, and said, go to the Prophet and give him what's under your arm. So Anas went to the masjid, holding the bread under his arm, and uh, when, when he, he said, when I came to the Prophet Rasulullah said, uh, did Abu Talha send you? And I said, yes. And the Prophet said, with food? And I said, yes. Now, Anas is trying to keep it like private. Like, hey, I got some bread for you here. Because there are a bunch of hungry people in the masjid too. Right? Like, I've got some bread for you. Like, Ya Rasulullah, like, let's go, you know, pass this off on the side. The Prophet stands up and he says to all of the Ansar, let's go eat. And starts marching towards the house of Umm Sulaim and Abu Talha. So, Anas said, I went running ahead of him to tell my parents before they think I messed up, like I didn't give the message right. Like you were supposed to tell him, eat that bread, not bring everybody to eat bread at the house. But like before, he said, I, I ran home and I told Abu Talha and Umm Sulaim what happened. And I said, Rasulullah is coming with all of Ahl al-Sufa, all the people from the masjid, they're all following the Prophet to the house. Umm Sulaim completely unfazed, she said, Rasulullah knows what he's doing. So he knows best. The Prophet comes in, he says to Umm Sulaim, What do you have? What's all the food that you have? 
So she took the bread from Anas and she said, Ya Rasulullah, that's it. That's all I've got. And then she says that the Prophet took the bread, he put it into pieces, he, he asked her if she had any like oil or butter, she had some butter, the Prophet put the butter on it in a bowl, and the Prophet made dua over it for some time. And then Rasulullah he said to Anas, go tell 10 people to enter. So you had this group of people outside of the house of Umm Sulaim, and batch by batch, the Prophet enters 10 men. And Rasulullah feeds all 10 of them with his hands. And the Prophet said, Ashra, bring another 10. So those 10 leave, another 10 come in. And Abu Talha and Umm Sulaim and Anas are just watching the Prophet serve this bread from his hand, alayhi salatu wasalam. And he kept on doing that until 80 men had come into the house of Umm Sulaim and outside of her house, all eating from the bread of his hand, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is, of course, a narration also on Dalal al-Nubuwa, from the proofs of his prophethood, witnessed by many people. The miracle of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, to take small quantities and make them into large quantities. And on top of that, uh, Anas, sallallahu anhu, said that we had food from that one bowl that was left over for two months. So all of those men came in, 80 of them, and they ate to their fill. And subhanAllah, from that bowl, the, the family of Umm Sulaim, the barakah that came from that, we all ate from it for two whole months before it ran out, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Another story, of course, in terms of the barakah of this family, the famous narration that you hear in every fundraiser, Dr. Altaf, Zakallah khair, you always remind us of this narration. <laughs> Maybe you could do it right now, you know, we do a fundraiser, inshallah ta'ala. The narration of Abu Talha radiallahu ta'ala anhu, Anas radiallahu anhu said, no one owns more palm trees in Medina than Abu Talha. Like he owned more property and he owned the best property, the best wells, the best trees. And his favorite property was called Bayruha, which was right in front of the Masjid of the Prophet And it had sweet water, like even the, the wells were sweet water. And Rasulullah used to sit in its shade and he used to drink from it. And people used to love that garden. The dates were the best from that garden. The water was the best from that garden. And when the narration, when the ayah came down, You will not achieve righteousness until you spend from what you love. This is in Ali Imran. SubhanAllah, look at the purity of this man. This is a, a righteous household. And you understand it in the context of this, right? It's not just an isolated narration, like what this household is like. Abu Talha comes to the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he said, Ya Rasulullah, bayruha, all of it, fi sabirillah, take it all. SubhanAllah, like the Prophet didn't ask him for that. He could have went and got another garden. He said, the best garden. And he said, I thought when I heard that ayah, when I heard you recite it, from the very first time, and this shows you the pulse, the iman, look at the difference between the first husband and the second husband. Malik ibn Nadr and Abu Talha. The first time I heard this verse, I thought, what's the most, what's the most beloved property I have? And this is it. Ya Rasulullah, take it. The Prophet was pleased and he said, you know, leave some of it for your family. You know, subhanAllah, but, but the, the, the righteousness was established and the story becomes something that, you know, on a serious note, right, it's one of those things that gets lost sometimes in a fundraiser because you, you forget that this is part of your teskiyah. Like, this is a story of teskiyah, like purification. Ijabatu uh, da'i, responding to the caller, right, right away, having no hesitation, no taraddud, immediately saying, Ya Rasulullah, this is it. This is lillah. This is for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Until now, by the way, you know, when you go into the masjid, uh, 
because the masjid has expanded to include where that garden used to be, they actually have it marked on the tiles, three spots that, that uh, mark the wells, where the wells used to be uh, of Abu Talha radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi used to go to their homes and he would uh, take naps in their home. So this is also part of establishing the family uh, relationship between the Prophet and them. And Anas ta'ala anhu said that on a hot day, the Prophet would sweat and Umm Sulaim ta'ala anha uh, took the sweat of the Prophet and she contained it and she mixed it with uh, what was known, what was perfumed to them. And it would become the most beautiful and the most fragrant of perfume. And Rasulullah he noticed what she was doing and Rasulullah said, Ma tasna'in, what are you doing? She said, I'm taking the blessings that are coming from you, Ya Rasulullah. So that's the level of love. And like when we talk about Umm Ayman anha and that care and that love of the Prophet very similar, right? That she wanted when the Prophet would shave his head in Hajj or Umrah, she wanted to keep the hair of the Prophet for herself. And Rasulullah honored that. Rasulullah would give her half of the hair that was shaved from his head for her to keep because this was the love that she had for the Messenger And in battle, Ibn Sirin narrates, he says that Umm Sulaim, there's, there's a narration about her in every single battle with the Prophet she was watching the back of the Prophet she was carrying the water vessels, she was treating the wounded, she was doing everything that she possibly could to still participate عنها, in that battle. And one of the most beautiful narrations in this regard, because it's, it's a whole family that, that the Prophet is honoring here. Abu Talha عنه, he comes to the Prophet one day, he says, Ya Rasulullah, you want me to make you laugh, Ya Rasulullah, by telling you something about Umm Sulaim? Like, let me tell you about her antics again. Because she had this strong personality, right? So like there are jokes that are being told about how assertive she is. So he says, Ya Rasulullah, you want to laugh about something that I saw Umm Sulaim doing? So the Prophet said, what happened? So Abu Talha says that when Khandaq was happening, Ghazwat al-Ahzab, she said, I saw Umm Sulaim hiding a knife in her abaya. And I said to her, what are you doing? What are you going to do with that? So she said, leave me alone, because if anyone tries to attack from behind, I'm going to stab him right in the stomach. And she was dead serious, like, I'm going to attack. I'm going to fight you know, with, with this, this knife of mine and protect the Prophet from behind. And she told the Prophet, Ya Rasulullah, you take care of the mushrikun, I'll take care of the munhazimun. You take care of the ones from the front, I'll take care of the ones from the back. You take care of your enemies, I'll if anyone from your army tries to flee, I'm going to hold the knife and I'm going to say, go back in there and fight. What are you doing abandoning the, battle, the battlefield? Like she wanted to be there always for the Messenger وسلم, always consoling him, always uh, showing her dedication and her sacrifice. And of course, what is the Prophet doing? He's raising Anas with such ihsan, with such excellence that every parent can be made to feel guilty with the story of Anas right? The way the Prophet would treat him and raise him. And it doesn't stop with that. Every single person in the household is special to the Prophet Umm Sulaim, Abu Talha, Anas, and they have, a, they have a son. And this is actually really important. Again, some of these stories you hear isolated at times. This was the only son that Umm Sulaim and Abu Talha had together at this point, Aba Umair. 
Umair, okay, or Aba Umair. Uh, Umair is the only son that they have together, and they're excited, they're, they're happy. And this is the half-brother of Anas radiallahu anhu, and he was famous for having the little bird that he used to play with. And the Prophet would come into the house, and he would say, Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'ala nughayr, tell me what's going on with the bird. Ya Aba Umair, ma fa'ala nughayr, what did the little bird do? And he'd sit there next to the Prophet and he'd tell the Prophet everything about the bird. Rasulullah who has to you know, care for this ummah, sits with this little kid and asks him all types of questions about this little bird. And then even comes to console him when the little bird passes away. SubhanAllah. I mean, and, and this is the beauty of this is that you learn the akhlaq of the Prophet through all of this as well. You're not just learning about these blessed people, you're learning about the most blessed person. Like, you've got time for that, comforting this little boy over the loss of his, his bird. But more than that was the tragedy of the death of Umair himself. So there's a timeline here. Now, Umm Sulaim has Anas. And she, uh, as we said, Al-Bara ibn Malik, possibly as well her son, who's grown at that point as a Sahabi in his own right that does things for the sake of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and we'll, we'll, we'll briefly touch on him as well. This is the one child that they've had together in Islam. Okay? Uh, Abu Talha and Umm Sulaim. And Abu Talha had a deep attachment to Umair. Right? This is one child, deep, deep attachment. And his death was sudden. So he caught a fever, and he passed away rapidly. The fever quickly increased, and of course at that time you don't really diagnose these illnesses with anything sophisticated. He died from a fever. Allah knows what he was actually struck with, but quick fever that rose, and he passed away. And as devastated as Umm Sulaim was, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna share this story with, with a disclaimer from the very beginning here. This is not, what I'm gonna share with you of this story is not an expectation, it's not normal. But I want you to think about the spirit of the Ansar, the selflessness which is the characteristic of the Ansar, the extreme selflessness that Allah praises in the Qur'an and how that's going to play out in the story. Umm Sulaim is devastated in her own right, this is her child, but she's worried about how hurt Abu Talha is going to be. So she, subhanAllah, you know, and Sister Lubna, you can, you can share all the stuff about how you're not supposed to do this in grief about delaying your own, and, and, and it's true, right? Like, this is, this is a story where we take the value and the blessing and the lesson, but SubhanAllah, her whole focus becomes how she's going to break the news to Abu Talha when he comes home, when he finds out about the death of his son. So she says to Anas Don't tell him until I tell him. Let me break the news to him. And so she's grieving her son. She doesn't tell him. I mean, obviously there is no way to tell him when he's not home and he's out somewhere on the outskirts of Al-Madinah. And she cooks a, a feast. She dresses nicely. She tries to prepare herself to tell him in a way that will comfort him and console him and allow him to be pleased with the qala of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, to be pleased with the decree of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the same evening that she goes through this, radiallahu uh, ta'ala anha, she cooks the food, she dresses well, he would have no idea what has happened. And she leaves Umayr radiallahu ta'ala anhu in his sarir, in his bed, and she's thinking about how she's going to break the news. 
Abu Talha comes home. She doesn't tell him. She waits. These are natural human struggles, right? How am I going to tell him? Maybe she had it in her mind that she's going to tell him right away, but she's struggling to break the news to him. The night passes, and they are together as husband and wife. Okay? The morning comes. She still hasn't told him. And she's struggling to tell him. Abu Talha thinks, natural day, I came home, my son was asleep. You know, we ate and we slept, woke up. And Umm Sulaim says to him, Ya Abu Talha, if someone loans you a gift, gives you a trust, wadi'a, a trust, and comes back and says, I want to take that trust back now. Right? Someone tells you, like, here's a trust, you can benefit from it for some time, but then when, I'm when, when you finish with that trust or when I need to take it back, I'll come back and get it from you. How should you return it? So Abu Talha said he should return it with gratitude, with shukr, right? Like that for whatever time you allowed me to make use of it, to benefit from this trust, from this gift that you gave me, alhamdulillah, should benefit. So Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha, she says to him in, in a very, in a quivering voice, Inna Allah astaradda ibnaka. Allah returned the trust of your son took back your son and has, has taken him back in his care. Abu Talha, confused, angry, grief. Why didn't you tell me last night? Why did you wait so long? The hurt of losing his only child? There's a lot to process here in terms of emotion. And this is a very unusual situation. And he doesn't know, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a mother that just lost her child too. And everyone is, you know, and subhanAllah, you have to have mercy on people in these moments. They don't, you know, people react in different ways. So everyone is doing with this, or dealing with this in a way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has guided them to deal with this. So he goes to the Prophet sallallahu and this shows you the comfort that the Prophet sallallahu offers to people in these moments. He goes to Rasulullah sallallahu to help overcome like what's inside, like I'm mad at her for not telling me right away. I'm devastated at the loss of my child. I mean, it just, what, how, what do I make of this, Ya Rasulullah? So he goes to the Prophet upset. And the Prophet smiles at him. Interesting smile. And Rasulullah says, Barakallahu lakuma fi laylatikuma. As if he knows something, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, may Allah bless you in that evening you spent together. That's it, a dua. What happened? On that very same night, she became pregnant. SubhanAllah. So when the Prophet said, Barakallahu lakuma fi laylatikuma, on that very same night she became pregnant. And with all the grief and sadness over the loss of Umair, you now have another son that is born to them. And when the son is born, they name him with the best name in Islam, Abdullah or Abdurrahman. They name him Abdullah. And Umm Sulaim sends Anas anhu to the Prophet says, tell him, what, tell him the baby's here, tell him the baby's here. Rasulullah comes to the house, excited, like an uncle, right? With love, and of course this was divine inspiration. Who's gonna tell the Prophet that that night, that very same last night that she was, that she was pregnant, that Allah had blessed her with this child? On the same night before they buried their child, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala blessed them with another child. And all of this confusion that was happening in those moments. 
And the Prophet comes to the house full of joy, embraces Abu Talha, picks up the baby, and Umm Sulaim hands him a tamr, a date. And the Prophet does what is known as tahnik. He rubs the date on his on what we do with our children, with the roof on the roof of his mouth, and he starts to rub the date in the mouth of Abdullah. Of course, that sugar stimulates, that natural sugar stimulates the, the system. And Abdullah can't get enough of it. So he's like trying to get more of the date, more of the date, more of the date, more of the date. And the Prophet laughs and he embraces him. He says, Look at the Ansar, they love dates. The people of Medina love Tamar. And the Prophet holds this child and makes dua for this child. The one son that Abu Talha and Umm Sulaim would have together after the one son that they lost, Abdullah ibn Abi Talha. And it doesn't stop there. Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu says, Wallahi laqad ra'aytu li al-ghulam. He said, from that one son, I swear by Allah, I saw from that one son, sab'a banin. Abdullah had seven sons. Kulluhum qad khatam al-Qur'an, all seven of them were hufaf. Subhanallah. Barakallahu lakuma fi laylatikuma. May Allah bless you in your evening. Subhanallah. From that one son, not only did Allah bless him with that one son, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him seven grandsons that were all hafaz of the Qur'an. And by the way, being a hafaz at that time was not as common as it is amongst us, believe it or not. Seven hafaz born to that son of theirs. The dua of the Prophet The way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave bushra to Ibrahim alayhi salam of Ishaq, wa min wara'i Ishaq, Ya'qub, and all of the sons, the grandchildren, grandsons and granddaughters that he would live to see alayhi salam. This is the blessing of this woman, Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha, and this man, Abu Talha radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and the story of tawakkul, the story of trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, that Allah azza wa jal does not ignore the plight of the believers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows the pain of the believers, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards that perseverance and that patience. This is an extraordinary story. And of course, the story is an open book until now, because the descendants of Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha are literally too hard to trace. You know, some of the companions of the Prophet sallam, like they have one line of lineage. From Anas radiallahu anhu, I mean, I don't want to start giving people ideas to go claim the lineage of Anas radiallahu anhu, but let's just say it's all over the world, right? I mean, some of the greatest scholars of our tradition, some of the greatest heroes of our tradition, People all over the Muslim world could trace their lineage back to Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu, which traces back to Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha. And we will talk about Anas radiallahu anhu next week in some detail. But I want to end with this woman with a very special narration from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam because it doesn't get better than this, right? The prize, the patience, the love, the closeness, clearly the Prophet sallallahu alayhi honoring this family. The Prophet sallallahu alayhi said in an authentic hadith, he said, دَخَلْتُ الْجَنَّةِ I entered into paradise. And he said, فَإِذَا أَنَا بِالرُّمَيْصَاءِ Right away, who pops up in my face? Umm Sulaim radiallahu anha. Right away, I enter into Jannah. فَإِذَا أَنَا بِالرُّمَيْصَاءِ Right away, Umm Sulaim radiallahu ta'ala anha is in front of me. And then, وَسَمِعْتُ خَشَفَ And I heard footsteps. قُلْتُ مَنْ هَذَا I said, Ya Jibreel, who is that? قَالَ هَذَا بِلَالِ That's Bilal radiallahu ta'ala anhu. And then the Prophet saw the palace. 
And he said it was so beautiful, he thought it was his own palace. Who's this palace for? That's for Umar ibn Khattab So in a narration like this, an authentic hadith, Bilal Umar al-Rumaysa, Umm Sulaim, the first person, not the first man, the first person he saw in this vision as he entered into paradise and the dreams of the prophets and the encounters of the prophets are, are truth. May Allah be pleased with her, be pleased with her husband Abu Talha, be pleased with their children, be pleased with all of those who dedicated themselves and sacrificed themselves to this or for this religion and gave that companionship and that love to the Prophet when others gave him cruelty. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to follow in their example. Allahumma ameen. Inshallah ta'ala, uh, the way this is going to work, the next, next week we're going to talk about Anas radiallahu ta'ala anhu. The week after that, we'll talk about her sister, Um Haram bint Milhan, and we'll talk about Ubadat ibn Samit, and then we will talk about Abu Ayyub al Ansari. So, the next four that we will cover, inshallah ta'ala, will take us to episode 80, and then inshallah ta'ala, we will end uh, for We'll take a break for the Hijjah with Abu Ayyub al Ansari, radiallahu ta'ala anhu. But basically, the next three weeks are with this family. So, you're going to hear more about Um Sulaim uh, after, inshallah ta'ala, over the next few weeks. May Allah be pleased with them all. Allahumma ameen. Inshallah ta'ala, I will take a few questions. No, no. Nine months later, yeah. As in intimacy and then, and then the conception nine months later. But like the Prophet ﷺ smiled at Abu Talha and he's like, why are you smiling at me, you know? You know, Allah has put something, blessed you with something. It's the same thing, subhanAllah, that sometimes causes you anger and frustration. Allah Azza wa Jal puts blessing in it. Any sisters? Any questions? Now you all know why I tell people to name their daughters Umaysa. All right, so inshallah, I hope some of you, may Allah bless you with some righteous daughters, will name your daughters Umaysa. Can you raise your voice, Asha? Any information about when Umm Sulaim became Muslim? When and the circumstances of her becoming a Muslim desert? No, just it starts with the story. So the, it's really in Tabaqat of Ibn Sa'ad and, and some of the, his, the, the books that narrate history that she was the first Muslim woman in Medina. But it starts with the story of, of, of uh, her and her husband, uh, Abu Talha. Uh, and, and Anas, عنه, of course, very common narrator in Bukhari and Muslim, which is why you find narrations about her story in Bukhari and Muslim, it's often not the narration, it's what precedes the narration. You'll find it in the text, Anas giving that historical background as well. So you find some of it in Bukhari and Muslim as well. But she would, she would have been in the gathering of Banu Najjar, the first gatherings of Mus'ab ibn Umair, and immediately Islam landed in her heart. Any sisters? I want to give the sisters a chance. Yeah. Uh, we will talk about them. So, uh, when it comes to um, Haram ibn Milhan, Sulaim, I believe it was Bir Ma'una. So I'll talk about it next week, inshallah. I have to go back and check which battle it was. But it will come up in the, in, in the context of the story, inshallah. There's another question? Yeah. Could you raise your voice a bit? Can I, there we go, that'd be better, inshallah. 
I'm not sure if I missed this, but uh, could you clarify her uh, relationship as a maternal aunt? Was that figurative or was it? Like so it was either through rila'ah, through breastfeeding, oh. or through actually being a great maternal aunt to the Prophet Because exactly. they're from the maternal side of Abdul Muttalib, so she would either be like a second aunt. And of course, the way marriage ages used to work at the time, it's natural to have an aunt that's younger than you or things of that sort. I mean, so. She, she wasn't that much older than the Prophet but some say she was a second aunt to the Prophet and some say it was through, uh, through the, the fostering, uh, the nursing uh, of her. Jazakallah. Yes. Definitely in COVID, don't take don't let anybody else put it. <laughs> There are some, there are some sayings of the ulama in that regard, so um, it's preferable, Allah knows best, the father or the, the parent with their child. So, tahneek, yeah, yeah. That's what, please don't bring me a date, you know. Zakumullah <laughs> But it's a good question. Oh, there, there, there is, there is some, some discussion about it, though. So some of the scholars did allow it, for sure, of a righteous person by extension. How old was Umair when he passed away? He would have been under the age of eight, just by, if you look at the nature of the, the, the ages. So Anas anhu was 10. Um, this, happens pretty, this happens after the Battle of Ahzab, so he would have been seven or eight years old maximum. No, Anas did not meet the Prophet until after Aqaba in Medina. Yeah. Any other questions? Sorry, I know that was heavy. Uh, it's one of my favorite stories for a reason, though, subhanAllah. So many lessons that I hope we can take for ourselves in the night time. Any other questions, though, before we stop for Aisha? You have a question? One, one, we'll take the last question, shall over here. Uh, you talked about the simplicity of the life they had, and at the same time, the husband was one of the richest men in Medina. Was it just simple living, or was it a hardship through their life? That they it's a done? great question, somehow. Something that actually I thought of as well, right? When you read about the one rug that they would use in, in the house, is it that they chose a, sim a simple life? That seems to be the case. Um, there are no stories about their poverty other than the fact that this was the one rug sort of that they had that they would use for everything, but there was no story of them going hungry, for example, or things of that sort. Uh, granted, the story of seems that the wealth that they had would have been spent uh, throughout, throughout Islam. And realize the Prophet made dua for Anas anhu's wealth, and Anas anhu, his, his estate would grow and he wouldn't know where it was coming from, subhanAllah. I mean, there was just so much blessing that came in that wealth of that family. And this sort of goes to so many of these concepts of you spend and it comes back to you. Anfiq, anfiq alayk. So the blessing that covered that entire family afterwards is established as well. The ghina in that regard. Zakumallahu khayran. Subhanakallahu bihamdik. Ashadu wa da'ilant. Astaghfiruk wa atubu alayk. Inshallah ta'ala we will talk about Anas radiallahu anhu next week. Wa sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Barakallahu 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 alayhi wa sallam.